welcome to the fourth and final episode of this mini-series, mini-pod, dedicated entirely, totally to dissecting Emerald Fennell's now Oscar-winning film, Promising Young Woman. There's a lot of, there's a lot of head head nodding from my guest today. I'm Anna Bogutska. I'm the host of the Final Ghost podcast, which is the feed you're on right now. And I'm also a writer. And joining me today for this final episode is the always unstoppable Jordan Cruciola. (laughs) Fair. Fairly assessed. (laughs) (laughs) The relentless Jordan Cruciola. Relentless in the best possible way. Yeah, I think, and I think today joined by a, a, a pair, like a similarly relentless figure, a similarly unstoppable figure. Truly. Because more so. I'm really, really genuinely excited to be speaking for the very first time ever and also recording a podcast for the very first, first time ever to writer and is it, is it accurate to say horror Twitter icon PJ Colangelo? I mean, you can say that I'm a horror Twitter icon. I'm not going to say it. I've said it. It's on the record. That's how I. That's how I've always seen you, PJ. Well, and this is how all you. British. It, this is how all British folks will now think of you in in Anna's empire of uh, British media <laughs> broadcasting. I mean, I like to think of myself more as like a professional shit poster. <laughs> <laughs> So, BJ, for anyone who isn't familiar with your work so far, could you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do? Sure. So I am a writer. I like to think of myself more as a film theorist and analyst than, say, a critic. Mm. And think of any horror publication. I've written for them at some point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, I'm also a filmmaker and a screenwriter, and uh, I write a lot about gender theory, uh, LGBTQ plus theory, um, all of all of those sorts of fun and exciting worlds within genre films. But I am particularly interested and particularly prolific in writing about uh, the rape revenge subgenre, which this mm-hmm. film is not a part of, despite everyone's popular belief. And uh, I love it more for it. <laughs> I mean, we're definitely going to touch on that. But before we properly go deep into this fourth and final dissection of the film, Jordan, I know we've been doing this for, I've lost count of how many hours now, three episodes. Yeah, three episodes, not three hours. (laughs) Not three hours for sure. But can you just remind people of who you are, where they can find your work so far? Yeah, uh, you can find me on on Anna's podcasts, thank God, um, intermittently, and then this one. And then you can find the Disaster Girls podcast if you want to hear all about disaster movies. You can find the Ots Tyrion podcast if you want to hear all about the intersection of pop culture and media and 2000s era horror films. Um, and then you can find the Patreon, patreon.com slash cruciola. Uh, because I make things like uh, independent podcasts that you can support me in doing. Go back into the archives and find the Simple Favor podcast that I did. A simple podcast. You can hear me talking so much, and I assure you, none of it will be enough. (laughs) (laughs) That is the truest words I've ever heard you speak. Um, But... Oh, and because BJ didn't say so, you can hear her and her wife and their podcast, This Ends at Prom, oh, yeah, where they reappraise, <laughs> they reappraise those fantastic. teen, uh, our, you know, millennium, particularly teen, mm-hmm. but expanding beyond that, 
a podcast that has accompanied me on many walks where I have laughed out loud and strangers have looked at me strange, weirdly. <laughs> You're welcome. That is what I'm here to do is to make everyone look as strange and concerning to concerning. strangers. <laughs> But Jordan and I have spoken extensively about this film already, but BJ, could you give us a little bit of of an overview of your own take on Promising Young Women? Like, what's your relationship with the film and what do you make of it in, in top-line terms? Sure. So I come to this movie from the perspective of somebody who had a horrendous experience in their early teen years that... I can now point to Nina's uh, experience and go, it's that. And I no longer have to do the emotional uh, trauma mining of explaining what I've gone through. I can now point to this film. So on that very superficial level, it means a lot to me just to Mm -hmm. have that ease. But I also come from it with a great love and appreciation for trying to tell a very complicated story about an incredibly complicated situation that culturally we have all decided needs to be as simple as possible. And it cannot be. It can never Mm -hmm. be simple as possible. And I love that this movie addresses those things and it makes people uncomfortable having to accept that this is a complicated movie and Mm -hmm. rape culture is a complicated discussion to have. Thank you. And before we kind of continue, because in this episode, we will be digging into the the complications and the reactions to, to the subject matter of rape culture and sexual assault. I just want to make sure that anyone who's listening thus far knows that consider this a, a trigger warning of sorts that we will be going in depth into those themes. And we will be talking about um, rape revenge films about, well, about revenge, about rape culture and about sexual assault. So if that's something that you don't want to hear discussed, that's absolutely fine. You can press pause here and go back to other episodes or or just not not listen further. But know that from this point onward, we will be going into depth in into those complicated matters that do need discussion, I think. So BJ, I wanted to pick you up on something that I've read you write about and you mentioned earlier that you think this film doesn't fit in into the framework or the subgenre of rape revenge movies and I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that. Absolutely so when we think about rape revenge films there's a pretty standard formula that is followed. We have the inciting incident which is a rape um, which is then followed by some form of rehabilitation either in the sense of this is how I'm going to plan and enact my revenge, or this is how I'm going to mourn what has just happened to me. But there's some form of rehabilitation. And Mm. then into our third act, we then have our revenge enacted. Promising Young Woman does not show a rape. Promising Young Woman does not show rehabilitation. And (laughs) and the revenge that that we do see enacted is coming from somebody that is not the victim it is somebody who was impacted by the harm on the outside but not somebody who directly experienced that specific incident and for me that means that this movie falls more closely to something like a vengeance film Mm -hmm. um these movies that we think of when we think of like charles bronson movies like that's where we're playing with but we're so unused to seeing that situation happen with a female protagonist Mm-hmm. And especially in terms of something that includes sexual violence, our brains just want to connect and go, oh, this is a rape revenge film. 
So then when you see Promising Young Woman and it doesn't have that revenge payoff the way that you assume is going to happen based on your knowledge of every rape revenge film ever made, you are now disappointed. You're now judging this movie the same way that you would be judging a fish by its ability to climb a tree. Like, it's yeah. that's not what this movie <laughs> is doing. And I understand your disappointment, but you're disappointed that this movie isn't what it was never intending to be. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a, a complicated question that I wanted to follow up with, which is one of the things that for me, I also don't see this film as a as a rape revenge movie um, for all of the reasons that you outlined, but also very specifically because I think it tries to avenge a whole system as opposed to yes, a particular yes. person. So I was wondering kind of, and this is for both of you, really, what do you make of this idea of a film that's attacking the whole of rape culture? It's trying to avenge or at least raise... Not awareness is not the right word, but like call Implicate? rape, yeah, call rape culture by its proper name, by mm-hmm. something that enables and protects abusers and mm-hmm. rapists, as opposed to the victims or survivors, or even allows for conversation about the subject. Mm-hmm. What do you make of this film, kind of trying to um, tackle the entirety of a system as opposed to a single wrongdoer? Since I've been here for a few episodes, BJ, I'm going to defer to you to go first on things. <laughs> sure. So the way if that you I, like, if you yeah, like, yeah, yeah, no, I totally can. <laughs> so the way that I look at it is, I think that it's incredibly smart because the only way that we are going to be able to change rape culture is by taking down the systems of oppression that are allowing it to to perpetuate, and that's really big. And that's very difficult, I think, for people to contextualize because it's so much bigger than you. We want, as as, as a culture, I guess I should say, people have a tendency mm-hmm. when they find out that someone is a sex pest or whatever to just be like, send him to an island and I hope he dies. Yeah. And that is not changing a system that is harming, you know, one person that's, that's, you know, impacting the cog in the machine. We have to dismantle the entire machine or mm. we're just going to continue getting more cogs. And promising a woman's ability to say, yeah, I'm not going to intentionally target just this one person. I'm taking down a system is really, really important. And I think people don't know how to wrap their mind around that because they can't do it in their own lives. I think for me, a, a thing that really, I you know, as far as the, the the message narrative that exists within the film amidst, you know, all the entertainment, of which there is plenty, I think a, a thing that, Im- that very much impresses me about this movie is that it makes something, uh, in my opinion, what it's doing very effectively is it's tricking you into thinking it's a very local story. It's tricking mm-hmm. you into thinking this is a mm-hmm. very local concern because of how much you're in Cassie's point of view. You're And the world is so aesthetically linked to Cassie's point of view, too. Like, the world around her looks and it, it corresponds visually with her style, her aesthetic. And it's sort of like, it's almost like this, if you, if Emerald Fennell gave an interview and she's like, oh, actually, this entire thing was a dream and it takes place in a snow globe inside of Cassie's bedroom and it's the world as she imagines it around around her and then she wakes up and it's back to normal again like i'd be like oh yeah it's a snow globe movie for sure just like look at the whole thing like it's so mm-hmm. it, the style the stylization and the just sort of the the energy the vibe of the whole thing um but i think 
Like, and it gets to me, it, that works hand in hand with the way that it tricks you into thinking you're watching something local when it becomes a conversation about something more global in scope as far as these problems and these systems go. Um, it works hand in hand to me with the marketing, which I know was, for for a lot of people I've talked to who have had, even if they've liked it, but they've had a bad taste in their mouth, kind of, like, mm-hmm. that they can't really separate from even in having positive feelings, and then some people who just fucking hate it. Um, the marketing seems to play a key factor in that in that bad taste they have. And just like I was sold something that didn't exist. Like I was sold a false bill of goods when to me that trick is part of the strength of the movie. Like mm-hmm. that that making you making you feel unsteady, I think, is essential to it. And I think the idea that anything that distances you as far as possible from how the movie is actually going to end seems to be the choices that were made in leading up to the, you know, the execution, the finale. So like the idea that the the trailers were misleading, that the marketing made you think this was a rape revenge movie. I think that actually the process of that, if you want to engage in it in like a metatextual sense, I think is one of the great assets of this movie to ask you, what is the value in that bloodlust for you? What is the what is the what is the realism of that bloodlust versus the reality of the outcomes that we we more we would typically see in real life in the mm-hmm. case of like a survivor or someone who is a survivor's loved one trying to avenge something that happened. So I think that I think the way that it makes it feel like the 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 myriad subversive ways that it feels like a romp, that it feels like a rape revenge film, that it feels like mm-hmm. so many other things that in Two minutes, it, it proves to you it is not in the most visceral and and upsetting and fucked up and betraying kind of way. I think like in that moment, if you weren't clear at that point that this is a system wide conversation that we're having with this movie, when you watch what happens to Cassie, it should come crashing down on you. And the idea of a movie structured around pulling the rug out from under you and making you upset about an issue that's so upsetting for me that's very effective. And I think it's it's the culmination of whether you want to think of it, again, I think we talked about this last time, Anna, do you think this movie was a magic trick or do you think it was a con job? Mm-hmm. And I think either way, whether it's the prestige moment and it's the culmination of the magic trick or it's the payoff of the long con, I think it manages, I think it manages to pull off either version of that sleight of hand extremely well and for me is very satisfying and makes it, makes it that system-wide comment. The like, oh, fuck. Well, to piggyback off of what you were saying, too, in terms of, you know, is this a magic trick or is it a con job? This movie also sets you up from the opening credits Mm -hmm. that this movie is not going to be what you think it's going to be because we Mm -hmm. see her have that night with, oh, oh, Adam Brody. Um, and (laughs) And then you see her walking down the street and she has, you know, the red on her and you're like, oh, it's blood. Mm -hmm. And then yeah, you're sure. Yeah. And then it's a jelly donut. And you're like, oh, this movie is not what I thought it was going to be. And it's Mm -hmm. telling you. It's telling you. Fucking 10 minutes in. I don't see anything. They told me nothing. I was bamboozled. I was like, where (laughs) were you bamboozled? It told you. Well, and I and I think like it, it, me, me and you have talked about this, BJ. The and I think what what you the the thing that you like the chord that it struck hardest me when you were talking was mm-hmm. it just I respect anybody I respect anybody's right to have any opinion they want on this movie, but if you assess it alongside movies that it is not and say that it did not succeed because those movies did it better when they are 
participating in completely separate activities mm-hmm. that's where i get very frustrated like the mm-hmm. the comparison to like you know it's you know look at look at a better if, if somebody were to say look at a better example of how this movie could be done a more say pers- possibly more responsible example say because people some people think this movie's outright fucking harmful to to women and survivors and but like you know look at it look at a better example like mfa like, look at a better example, like, like, boys, boys versus girls or girls versus boys. So, like, Danielle Panabaker movie. It's like, but they're not doing the same thing. Right. It's not, it, it, like, it, you're it's a talking about intention. very, like, head-on, stare-straight-at-the-camera rape-revenge movies. And in this, you're talking about something that plays with the tropes of the rape-revenge genre. But it, it, in and of itself, is not a rape-revenge film. So, judging it against the successes or failures of movies like that means you're judging, like, you're judging a car against a rowboat. Like they d- they do not, as you said, a fish that can climb trees. They they are not seeking to perform the same actions or satisfy the same outcomes. We're all in agreement, I think, that this movie is trying to address institutional or systemic approaches to sexual assault. It's trying to it's trying to address rape culture, basically. Mm-hmm. How do you think it does that? Like, what are the the cinematic mechanisms that you think it deploys successfully or less successfully you know i think feel free to also talk about the things that don't work for you as well in this film how do you think it cinematically addresses rape culture i think one of the smartest things that this movie does which a lot of movies that kind of fall under a similar umbrella as this one is that it also showcases that women or those of marginalized gender identities can be participating in their own oppression. And I think that concept alone puts a lot of people off because it's a mm-hmm. conversation that we do not want to have because it is painful and it is uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about slut shaming culture, mm-hmm. which we get in this with Alison Bree's character. We don't want to talk about when women want to maintain the status of their position of power to the point where they will harm other women to stay on top of it where we have with Connie Britton's character. And the movie is so unflinching to say, this isn't just a Mm. bad guys do bad things situation. This is a systemic problem that has impacted everyone and it has caused harm to everyone. And we are in many instances, either knowingly or unknowingly participating and continuing to perpetuate within it. And that I think was very striking Mm -hmm. for me because that that is of all the conversations we are not having enough of when discussing rape culture and there is a lot of them Mm -hmm. the fact that Mm -hmm. it is not this isolated some people are bad situation Mm -hmm. is the one we need to be having the loudest in my opinion yeah Mm -hmm. well and i think i i think um uh, like more and more as as matters of equity become more mainstream conversations um what i find just like you know with the you know the recent piece that came out about the showrunner of the the cbs series all rise and him being a horrible miserable bastard that was like terrorizing people like the writers in the room of that show like that's this that's fronted by a black woman that was just canceled um the scott rudin expose that came out where pieces in the hollywood reporter and vulture have decades worth of mostly assistance attesting to how publicly and obviously abusive this person was and every time it's these people at lower levels particularly in like the case of rudin in these two examples where it's people who were assistants at that time are the ones that always have to speak out and detail things it's the assistants it's the low people lowest on the totem pole with the most 
future to lose, the most, like, future earning potential, future career potential to lose are the ones that have to come out and fucking topple these people. It's never, like, right-hand man of ex-executive comes forward and spills the beans on all the things this guy has been doing. It's never that. It's the fucking people who have endured all the abuse. And I think, like, a, a, a thing that happens sort of on the side of everything that's going on in this movie is that because we get such a cast of characters who contributed to the spiraling of Cassie that it like that leads to her ultimate self-destruction is this reinforcement that there are no sidelines anymore. Like, because these conversations have been poured into the public domain, because we say time's up now, because we recognize that, like, sexual abuse within the workplace is a problem across all industries, and with Hollywood being the sort of, like, most prominent magnifying glass through which we can consider that and examine it, there are no sidelines anymore. You Nobody gets to say they didn't know. Like, some people genuinely, sincerely don't know, but the amount of people who say... I didn't know who did, but they downplayed it, who did, but didn't take it seriously, who did, but said, he's just awkward. He's just a bad boyfriend. Oh, that's just how he is. Don't worry about it. The amount of people who have said that, who have later said, I had no idea. It's like, no, 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 no. Maybe you didn't know the extent of the problem. Fair, legitimate. But the idea that you didn't know, like with someone like a Rudin, these things were happening, like, in offices with glass walls. You can't say you didn't know, but you sure as fuck didn't speak up. And just the the emphasis that you see in this movie on no matter how tangential you think you are to a situation, if you are not participating in the act of justice, or at the very least, if you are not an actively anti, not just, like, emotionally against, but if you are not actively anti the horrible fucking poison problem then you are perpetuating mm -hmm. it. Like, you you are, you are, perpe and like, that fucking sucks. And that's not me saying I'm doing enough. That's me saying I have to acknowledge that out loud to know. I don't get, there are no luxury of sidelines anymore. And if I'm not participating in some measure to topple what exists, in some measure, even in the smallest sense I can, or in the smallest ways I can help and support people mm -hmm. who've been victims of oppressive systems, then I am not doing enough. And none of us are. And I am, and I am not currently doing enough but I need to say out loud that I am not doing enough. And you look at this movie again, amidst all the fun and entertainment and, you know, millennial pink and like Byzantine framing of, of Carrie Mulligan. It's very clever and the soundtrack and et cetera, et cetera. There are all these people that just didn't do anything. It's, it's a great and rollicking indictment of, of anybody who would take the like, position of. Exactly. Didn't you what? didn't, I didn't do, do anything. anything. <laughs> I didn't do anything. You sure fucking didn't. You sure fucking didn't. And, and somebody needed you to do something. Somebody needed any number of people to do something. Something. Anything. Or even in the in the worst possible ways. And I think this is one of the, the things that the film illustrates that is so uncomfortable to look at. Because, you know, as you say, as you mentioned earlier, BJ, and I was aggressively nodding when you were mm -hmm. saying that, the way that it presents women who have been participating knowingly and unknowingly through Alison Brees and, and Connie Britton's character in protecting mm -hmm. not just the the rapist, the Venus rapist, but also 
uplifting and maintaining this entire institution, mm-hmm. the medical school. You know, it's using a university as a as a little mini framework for a much for a much larger a system that exists everywhere. You know, and it's not just stateside. Mm-hmm. It's not just in in colleges. It's everywhere in every single country in the world, and it will obviously have different nuances and mm-hmm. different situations. But I distinctly mm-hmm. remember knowing and recognizing those women as well and seeing just how uncomfortable it was to see in a film that is written and, and you know very directly exploring written by and uh, written and directed by a woman that I knew the criticism would come at her for putting women in those situations but Connie Britton's character in particular the the dean mm-hmm. that blasé attitude and the wraparound language mm-hmm. and that like therapized oh tone gosh, of voice yeah. like uh, yeah yeah what was your friend's name that like really relating friendly yes. female therapist voice that's like meant to soothe you and make you feel mm-hmm. safe so you don't remember the accusations made against Al Monroe I don't he took a girl Nina Fisher the one you don't remember, back to his room where he had sex with her repeatedly and in front of his friends while she was too drunk to have any idea what was going on. She was covered in bruises the next day. Handprints, I guess you could say. Was it reported? Yes. Do you know who Nina spoke to? You. But you can't remember, so... You felt there wasn't sufficient evidence. You said it was too much of a he said, she said situation. Well, you know, we get accusations like this all the time. One or two a week. I'm sorry I don't remember your friend Nina, but I can assure you at that time that I looked into it thoroughly. His friends were all watching, laughing. It's so hard. But you know, also if she was drinking and and maybe couldn't remember everything, so she shouldn't have been drunk. I'm not saying that. I, sorry, I don't, have, I don't mean to sound critical, Dean Walker. I just want to be clear. None of us want to admit when we've made ourselves vulnerable, when we've made a bad choice. And those choices, those mistakes can be so damaging and really regrettable. Regrettable? Yes, I mean, because what would you have me do? ruin a young man's life every time we get an accusation like this but that but that sense of care that duty of care only really applied to al monroe in the film and the fact that we've kind of Mm -hmm. talked about this i think throughout the entirety of the previous three episodes the fact that nina's name is only remembered mainly by cassie the fact that she really just wants to people to not forget Mm -hmm. what happened not even you know necessarily she she i think she doesn't she knows she understands that she's not Mm -hmm. going to be able to change the entire culture herself one drunken one fake drunk incident at a time but it's the not letting nina's name be forgotten and the fact that the dean forgot her fucking name even after she came forward was the scene that really Mm -hmm. The both times I've seen every single time I've seen this film, it really sticks with me because it's the it's the participation in the culture and it's the coddling in language that is so passive aggressive. 
and so laden with giving importance to everyone except Nina. Everyone must be protected except her. Well, and in, in, in that in that scene, as soon as that happens, you get the the it raises the question There's of also this- so how many Alman Roses she ushered out the door at this school? There's also this level of feeding into this sort of toxic positivity culture with her in that mm. when you mention Al Monroe, it she lights oh, up God. like, oh, he's this great doctor. He's this incredible person. And then he's when just you, giving his talk to the school. Right. But yeah. then you mention Nina. And he reflects it's this so well on the school. Tell, she has purged that name from her mind because it is mm. a dark moment like this is the stain on her career as the dean because not only is it this awful situation but also like that student is no longer with us so of course that has to leave because if i want to be this big successful dean with this powerful Mm -hmm. school and these incredible inspiring students i need to put my energy and my intention towards the alman rose these wonderful Mm -hmm. people who have accomplished so many things and completely push aside all of the ugliness that got him to be this big success. And that's, I think, another thing people don't want to talk about because it's uncomfortable. The amount of times people are like, I just don't have the space for negativity, which obviously, yes. Right, yeah. I just don't, like, I don't, like, I just can't, like, deal with the drama. I just, like, don't have any room for that in my life, you know? Just, like, I just, like, don't give a fuck. Like, I just, like, I can't give a fuck anymore. Like, I'm out of fucks to give. It's like, well, guess what? We're at the dawn of you have to... give a fuck so i'm sorry you're out of them to give it's like the it's like that viral like friendly message it's like i just don't have i don't have space right now to deal with your issues my dear friend so can you like maybe contact (laughs) me in four weeks time when i will have my chakras will be open enough for me to deal with your issues that you're going through right now because i have no space for negativity in my life well it's the the weaponization you were talking about jordan with sort of that like therapy voice (laughs) you feel safe that weaponization has also happened with toxic positivity and that we we've established Mm -hmm. like hey it's okay to like take time for yourself or you know we started this episode with a trigger warning that is a good thing however comma big ass comma that has then turned into this yeah. thing where we're just absolving ourselves from any <laughs> sort of situation that makes us uncomfortable, where it's like, I don't want to talk about that. We just need to all get along and everything's fine. Why can't we just love each other? It's like, because some people fucking suck and we need to like investigate why they <laughs> suck so then we can love each other. We can't just pretend they're not there. Yeah, <laughs> well, they don't. We don't get to put them on the ice floe. <laughs> I think there, there's another, there's another element, another prong to this toxic positivity thing. I don't even know how to call it. Like trend? Is it an issue? Is it a, is the way of being or of cutting out or refusing to deal with things? I mean, it's fucking annoying. There's that, that. is very true. <laughs> but it's the it's the fixing something, right? So mm-hmm. it's the idea that well you know, this won't fix anything. Like, what do you want? What do you want? And I think this is one of the things that makes people uncomfortable about Cassie's vengeance or her Mm -hmm. relentlessness is that what is she going to gain? You know, there's no, there's no rehabilitation, but there's also no prize at the end of the tunnel. Like, what does she Mm -hmm. want? She wants Nina's name to be remembered. Of course, Mm -hmm. she wants to sort of, avenge Al Monroe but uh, she wants to sort of punish Al Monroe but not in the way that we've been um, 
not in a way that rape revenge movies work but it's the it feeds into this toxic toxic positivity element of like yeah but what's what's the solution how can we Mm -hmm. fix this situation and sometimes you really just need to go you know what this fucking sucks let's Mm -hmm. talk about it let's let it out it just fucking sucks Mm -hmm. i need to vent Mm -hmm. like (laughs) just and it's i think kind of to bring it back to the encounters that cassie has with um connie Britton's character and with um and with alice and Bree's character is that they refuse to accept what a fucking horrible situation that was both Mm -hmm. in the in the moment and afterwards so we've spoken a little bit about um about the dean connie's character but can we talk a little bit about Alice and Bree's character, her old classmate who she reconnects with, and her very? God, pre- is there anybody currently better in Hollywood than Alice and Bree at playing that bitch? Like, <laughs> Jesus, she's good at that. That bitch, T. Like, yeah, like oh that that oh you know her like, and I think for me that's the one of the real triumphs of this movie is you know I'm not sitting here being I like I I, I want to emph- like. The way I talk about this movie, to me, it's a perfect movie. It's a perfect movie. I don't think it's like the most genius original thought anyone's ever had. No, it's not that. I think it's the way that it takes this very well-worn convention, the way it takes very well-worn conventions of of rape and film, um, of revenge and film, of the merging of those two things, and presents it in the most casual way possible. That I'm just so taken aback. Mm. Like, this is the colloquial conversational ver like version this is like the fucking brunch version of a rape and revenge story like every like the characters i I, i've I've said this before on this pod of just how i am so impressed by how emerald fennell took like those thoughts of like the 30 something millennial woman and it can be hard to get your thoughts out of your head sometime and put them on the page exactly like you think like that's what we struggle with all the time as writers like okay Mm. no no i know how it's in my head what's the exact way that that needs to land on the page to be most evocative for people and she took those conversations we are constantly having with the other women particularly the other women and like the gay people in our lives and put it so succinctly on the screen that it looks like one of those conversations just poured from someone's imagination that became pictures. Like, those archetypes are so familiar. The familiarity of all the people on the screen as you see them. They're not these incredible original incarnations of, like, something we've never seen. It's just, they're like these perfect visualizations and these bite-sized experiences of exactly those fucking people. Like, hashtag those fucking people who you come across in your life who just make your shit worse at every turn. Like, and that Alison Brie character, Madison, it's gotta be Madison too. Like, mm-hmm. right? Like, surely <laughs> she was born the year that Madison was charting in like the top five baby names at the American Social Security Administration. Like that Madison was definitely on that trending list. So even just like that her name is fucking Madison. That you have Piz from... Veronica Mars, that you have Seth Cohen, that you have McLovin, that you have fucking Coach Tammy. Like, fuck, you have, you have Tammy Taylor, you have Coach's wife, you have all these people presented. There is so much visual and sort of sense memory shorthand for what you're seeing on screen 
to like the movie bears out that shorthand but if you are of the generational experience where you have attachments to these variety of names and faces that you see on the screen it creates almost easter eggs for you it creates this visual shorthand for how you're supposed to be feeling about these people that the movie then pokes holes in and it's playing with you it's having fun with that so in with the Allison Brie character is such a perfect example like Allison Brie's character is like I I would imagine so many people could watch this and be like that's that's the girl who made fun of me in high school that's her mm-hmm. there she is right there mm-hmm. like that that's the girl who like she was one of the plastics like that's the girl who told me like I like your outfit and then looked me up and down when she really definitely did not like my outfit like she so is that wasp like not bully but bully adjacent person who like never got her own hands dirty but was involved in like so much shit of making people feel worse about themselves. And so, and and the thing about like the casualness of this movie and that that shorthand and the way like you get cued up for how you're supposed to feel about people so immediately and the way that it, it plays with and subverts, the, sub, subverts those expectations and assumptions about everything you're seeing because of that with a character like Madison, you see that the unchangeable aspect of people that's really infuriating like people grow people evolve but at the same time what this movie really underscores is that when you have people who participate in abusive structures to either maintain their own comfort or to gain power through being abusers themselves it's the it it, this movie emphasizes at every turn if there was one there are more if it happened once it will happen again if you aided and abetted that person you will aid and abet another person if you abused a person in your past you are it's likely that you have abused more people than we are aware of or that you are willing to acknowledge and what you see like that all these people are seven years removed from what happened with nina and that all of them are in some way the exact same person they are when they left her to rot the first time feels so terrifyingly realistic like some people go through a cat like cassie instigates that cataclysmic moment of change in madison's life when she you know does the horrifying thing to her of like making her think she might have been raped um and you see that madison is having a reckoning but it's not until a cataclysmic moment hits a person ensconced in privilege of which i'm certainly a person ensconced in a level of privilege um that they're really actually until it comes to their door they're not really actually willing to recognize the ugliness of reality but it was brought to her door and then she saw it and cassie was just bringing the ugliness to people's doors because they were incapable they were truly incapable and unwilling of seeing that ugliness otherwise you know i actually wanted to meet you today to talk about something in particular i did wonder no one's heard from me in like forever (laughs) i wanted to talk to you about why i dropped out Okay, sure. You remember what happened, right? Oh, such a long time ago now. I know, but you remember. I mean, vaguely. Do you ever think about it? Why would I? Right. Why would you? So if a friend came to you now, came to your house and told you that they thought something bad had happened to them the night before. Cassie. Something bad. It was years ago. What would you say? It, uh, what would you say? Uh, ugh. A little weird. Would you roll your eyes behind her back and dismiss the whole thing as drama? I don't know why you're mad at me. 
Okay, I, I'm not the only one that didn't believe it. If you have a reputation for sleeping around, then maybe people aren't gonna believe you when you say something's happened. I mean, it's crying wolf. You thought I was crying wolf. Alison Brie's character in this movie has so much Megan McCain energy oh, that God. it's palatable to the <laughs> point where I remember when <laughs> Megan McCain had her baby and then went on The View to talk about like, did you know that there is no paid maternity leave in America? Yeah. And everyone's like, yeah, no shit. Where have you been? And that's <laughs> very much what we have going on with Alison Brie's character. You know, <laughs> how many times in her life has Madison said, my father... Like, right. how many times? <laughs> like, Madison is just a walking Ray Dunn mug. Like, it's a mug yeah. that says mug in, like, cute handwriting. Like, that's who she is. But what I love about this choice is that in most rape revenge movies, this scene of reckoning would be Cassie kidnapping her and, yes. like, tying her to a chair yeah. and being like, look at your beautiful life. Do you want that to go away? Like, that's what that scene would be. Yeah, like pictures of her kids, pictures of her husband on Facebook. She's like, I'm going to fuck your husband and I'm going to ship your kids off for adoption. Like, Right. That's what that would be in any other movie. But Promising a Woman is so grounded in the unfortunate reality that it's like, no, this conversation is going to happen over brunch. Over fucking wine. We're going to have wine and we're going to use our calm voices when we talk about (laughs) these very serious situations. Mm -hmm. But we're going to have this discussion because that's kind of the only way that it can happen like if you really want to go off and like like i i have a madison and like the moment that she showed up on that screen i was like i fucking know you you were at the party when that happened to me your boyfriend laughed about it and you were like i just don't want to get involved with the drama like i know you i'm not gonna Mm -hmm. go kidnap you and tie you up i will have an (laughs) uncomfortable conversation with you over brunch that will happen (laughs) I wonder, like, is it, is there something just, like, only, could, like, only a British person have written this movie with the way that it's, like, <laughs> so confrontational but avoidant at the same time? Like, did, did, like, a British sensibility of, like, keep calm and carry on become the perfect voice through which to capture this, like, culture of subcutaneous rage that we're going to paper over with brunch like i feel like because not that we're not doing that here in america but it feels just like something that is very intrinsic from what i understand to sort of the like oh i like i don't have feelings i'm british kind of thing like this like you know stiff up our lip situation anna you're our 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 foreign correspondent like our global correspondent yeah (laughs) citizen of the world as much as an alien as i am here in britain uh i i like that reading but coming from <laughs> both a very expressive emotional culture and a deeply repressed, never discuss things ever, just repress everything forever and pretend like nothing ever happened. Yeah, like ever that combination is itself is explosive. <laughs> <laughs> I I think that's a very it's a telling reading. It's a really telling reading of the sensibilities. And, you know, we, we'd we be remiss if not to mention that, you know, a lot of people have held Emerald Fennell's own privilege against her, which 
fine. Like, let's not let's not mince around. Like, she is incredibly privileged in her bringing yeah. in where she comes from. She's just a very fucking good writer. I She's appreciate it. She's a very it, but... fucking good writer. And, like, Cassie, you know, Cassie isn't landed gentry. But, like, Cassie <laughs> is, a, is a, you know, a middle class American white woman who gets to go, mm-hmm. who is able to go live at home and fucking phone in adult mm-hmm. responsibilities and be essentially like, have all the essentials taken care of by her parents. Like, that is a privileged thing that she gets to go do. And listen, privileged white women know how to write fucking privileged white women. Like, yes. <laughs> that's that that tracks. And I also don't think that Emerald is unaware of the privilege that she has. I think that I it not. greatly informed how she was presenting these characters because there mm-hmm. is a specificity that does go along with that privilege. So yep. yes, it's not a net negative. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. she has a lot of money and for sure that's going to be representative of characters like Connie Britton that like, I'm never going to be able to be that person because I'm never going to know what that much money feels like, nor no. have I mm. ever. <laughs> I like when I, it's like when I talked to my best friend is from, is from the Upper East Side and like she she went to the Brearley school and just like this is like blue blood American money that goes to these like some of these New York interschools and and, and Brearley seems to be one of like the, the 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 bluest blood of them of them all like a like and, an old money school yeah like the closest thing America has to old money like that's what Brearley kind of that like you know there are mm-hmm. I, I've heard you know her trash talk about things like Sacred Heart and other parts of like the all girls interschool system it seems like Brearley was kind of like <laughs> all of el- this this yeah. is the equivalent of like watching Downton Abbey to me I was like tell me more about oh my this God. <laughs> fantastical <laughs> blue like blood world intrigue. it's incredible like, absolutely nothing about me can relate but watching her Watching my best friend around rich people is amazing. It's like, I'm not uncomfortable around rich people, but the thing about me around anybody is that I act the same constantly, which causes my best friend a lot of stress when she sees it happening because she knows that language. She knows that she has Mm -hmm. rich face. She knows that choreography. When you see her around very moneyed people, She's being herself, but there's also just a way she knows to communicate with them. She knows exactly what they want out of the interaction that they're having with the status of person that she is or the status of professional that she is. She knows how to comfort these people. She knows how to make them feel special and important and in ways that are completely genuine to her personality. It's not like I'm watching a different person. And probably also knows how not to upset them. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like she was like she she works in education and when like in our you know our struggling 20s she tutored people as well and she like was a high-end english tutor and she fucking clients loved her she was great with the kids like she's a great tutor but at the same time she was amazing at dealing with rich parents and so like watching somebody who know who is native to a certain kind of privilege and and bubble wrap around them in the world, write characters who are benefiting from moving through the world with that same bubble wrap around them, never having known mm-hmm. anything different. That imbues an authenticity to these characters. We all bring our lenses to the shit that we write. And there is like, there's such a, like, the privilege of this film is an active aspect of it. It's not an unaware or unacknowledged piece of it. Like, the navigation of, People leveraging their privilege, not being aware of it, but exploiting it. People being, people, Cassie being aware of it, but being, you know, apathetic as best she can to it. Well, certainly being aware as like, again, 
these are women we could be talking to at brunch where they'd be like, look, I fucking get it. Like I'm from Mud. Like I have these conversations with my friends where they like admit that like, yeah, I know I've got like all these things in place and that super helps. Like she knows that she can phone it in working at a cafe because she doesn't have to pay for any of her essentials. Like, and as again, I've cited this multiple times, that conversation she has with Laverne Cox where she's like, I could go out mm-hmm. and get all that in 10 minutes. The husband, the job, the money. I can get in 10 minutes. It's right out the door. I don't want it. I don't want it. She knows she has these mm-hmm. options right outside this room that she can go snatch up that most people just don't have access to. So, like, the the conversation around privilege in this movie, which is so embodied by Madison, the conversation yes. around privilege in this movie, as though it is something that is not working in working with and for the story and like it's something that's just like ignorantly being alighted over to me is is fucking nuts that's fucking nuts like you can hate you can hate the rich you can hate privilege but it like that can it can make you super mad but it doesn't mean that the way that it works in this story is like a a drag on it or that it's a blight or that it's that it's a malignancy no it's just a part of it and can we talk as well uh, to specifically about madison and about her reckoning and that moment when not only when she gets uncomfortable which she has clearly avoided doing for a very very long time arguably the that character's entire life but mm-hmm. when confronted with that uncomfortable reality that uncomfortable conversation that you were talking about earlier bj how does she change like how does she deal with that what is the what do you think about the way that she shifts as a character once she is confronted with the uncomfortable with the uncomfortableness that cassie brings into her life and the moment that gives us that amazing carrie mulligan line reading where she just like i was really hoping you'd feel differently after all these years it's just like yeah the chills (laughs) (laughs) the thing that i love the most about the allison brie shift is because when you have that conversation and she's talking with Cassie. It's very much like, we really haven't heard from you. Oh my gosh, we've missed you. Mm-hmm. And then after the, you know, the trickery, I guess, of making her feel as if like she may have been assaulted, um, her reaction afterwards is, don't ever fucking talk to me ever again. Yeah. And it's like, Never well, now you know why she has not talked to you for all of these years. Like, mm-hmm. it, you, you get it now. And I, th- I find that very fascinating to me. And at the same time, because then we get that that big bomb drop of here is the footage and mm. it's presented in a way that feels both I'm doing this because you deserve to know, but also I'm doing this because I know this is going to fucking hurt you. Uh-huh. And that I think is like peak like girl boss energy just that terrible manipulation of girl boss big time girl girl boss of madison yep yes because you are presented this information and you do for a moment you're like oh well she did this nice thing she let her know the truth but Mm. at what cost like you Mm -hmm. did that knowing this is going to cause harm and that i think is really interesting like there could have been a million ways to present that situation but the way that allison brie gives it to her lets me know immediately, one, this is intentional, and two, mm-hmm. this was intentionally done to just kind of, like, I need to get that last line in here. Like, you fucked me up and freaked me out, and I'm not letting you get away with it, so here's this, but I'm hiding it in a compliment, because that's what those kind of girls, like, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. It's amazing the ability that people have to create the reality that works for them. 
Mm-hmm. And, and like this is this is total. It's it's like a it's like a totally tangential like anecdote. But like I remember, I will make it the briefest version possible. Um, we can talk about the longer story another time. But um, I a friend who uh, I became like super fast friends with my senior year of college. We were like intensely like close that whole year. My birthday happens at the end of the school year. We have like a great day at the beach with her and my my other my like my group of best friends. Great day. She buys me dinner that night for my birthday. Next morning, she calls me to it wakes me up. This call wakes me up at 10 a.m. Tells me we shouldn't be friends anymore after we graduate and we shouldn't ever talk again. <laughs> Believe Harsh. me, if I gave you more context, this part wouldn't make any more sense. So, and I was just like, <laughs> okay, uh, okay. Uh, I feel like you've made up your mind about this, but uh-huh. can I ask why? And she's like, no, I really, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. It was a two minute call. And then okay. I hung up and that was it. Cut to three years later, I'm living in San Francisco and this person reaches out to me and it's like, hey, I'm coming to San Francisco, which like you probably, you surely would have known from Facebook that I live there. Um, and I'm going to like stay with my aunt. I would love to see you when I'm there. And I was like, great, let's hang out. Sure. It sounds awesome. Like, let's have a catch up. Like this was, this was, there was, there was no hint there was no hint that there was any weird end between us. It was just like, oh, girl, let's mm. catch up. So I'm like, yeah, let's hang out. So I invite the friend over and she shows up at the door. She didn't say in uh, our email setting up like a time to hang out. She comes to my house. She brought her best friend from grad school with her. So there's another person. And I'm like, oh. OK, so this is this this meetup is happening with all of this behind us and all of this. OK. Um, and you, you've brought a witness. So, all right, welcome. Everybody come in. We're hanging out. And as we are talking, I'm like, how much does this girl know? What does this girl know about like the last time we talked to each other? Like, what is the backstory here? What's going to happen? And my, this form, this former friend of mine just talks, not only like nothing ever happened, but like we have maintained a relationship in the interim in a, <laughs> like trying to make it in a convincing way to the point where she would tell a story and she would be like, oh, my God, did I forget to tell you that? Like, looking at me directly in the eyes. Oh, my God, Jordan, did I forget to tell you that? We hadn't spoken in three years. And she multiple times throughout the conversation would bring up stories and be like, did I not tell you that either? Like, reinforcing this fiction for, I guess, the performance benefit of this friend she brought with her who she's just sitting on the couch and she's just like, Nice, sweet girl, lovely, great to meet mm. her. But throughout this conversation, she just kept incepting this parallel universe in which we just like hadn't called in a while and just kept, like, oh, did I not tell you? And and so I, like the first time she did it, there was like a beat in my mind where it's like, where do we go with this? And then I just want to see how far we're going to take it. So I was like, oh no, you forgot to mention that. And I was just like, great, we're lying. We're fully lying right now. <laughs> like we are, I am buying into the lie. Let's see how long this goes. Hung out for six hours. Oh, my God. Okay. Did that shit the entire time. Two locations. We left at one point, went to a restaurant and kept hanging out. Me, her, and this, me, her, and her friend. And then, oh, it was so good to see you again. Like, we did the whole deal. Whole deal. Haven't heard from her since. There's a disassociation there that is just bizarre to me. Like, like, every time I've experienced that from people, I'm always like, my default thinking is like, did I did I legit make that up? Like, did that happen? <laughs> yeah, no, that's so real because like, it's, and like that's what that's what we see it. Like this, that is 
what we mm-hmm. are seeing in this. This is what we are seeing. Every person in this movie has done exactly that. Every person yep. who sees Cassie is like, girl, hi. Oh my God, it's good to see you. Fucking Madison's like, yes, brunch. Bo Burnham's like, I want to date you. Like, it's, everybody's like, oh, it's so, yeah, oh, Bo, Ryan, Al, Cassie, oh, everybody's doing that. They've created, when it was, it wasn't a small thing. It wasn't a thing that no one knew about. There was video of it. As Madison said, I can't believe we all thought it was funny. I can't believe we all laughed. Jokes were made. Videos were packed. This was a shared, it wasn't isolated. It was a shared experience mm-hmm. of ruining a person and everyone was like oh, it's so good to see you what <laughs> on that on that note actually to keep talking about the women in in this film that have perpetuated or allowed for for this culture and for nina's for the forgetting and erasure of nina to to happen there's been it's a very deliberate choice in the film mm-hmm. to to punish them or to confront them in a very different way from mm-hmm. the quote-unquote nice guys yeah, in yeah, the film. Yeah. All men are bad in this film. But what do you make of the of the way that Cassie deals with, with Madison and with, the de- and with the Dean, the way that she makes them confront the, the situation and she makes them have their own reckoning, which, you know, I'm... I'm a little bit dubious about, I'm a little bit ambivalent about calling it a punishment, but I right. guess that's the mm-hmm. closest, that's the closest thing I can come up with right now. The way that I look at it is similarly to the way that we, you know, very obviously generalized describe the way that we interact, like in high school, where we'll say things like, guys will get mad at each other and punch each other in the face and then they're cool the next day, whereas yeah women tend to commit like psychological warfare with one another <laughs> yeah. and yes. that's like what we're that seeing fucking thing with that girl i knew just like, like that's what we're seeing here and i will fully admit i do the same thing <laughs> because like as jordan you as you were talking i was thinking about the fact that um so i'm also a pancreatic cancer survivor And I was diagnosed after I had left my hometown. But when I was cleared to like go back, visit my family, I did. And I remember walking into a bar and there were all of these people there that I went to high school with who I have not seen since high school, but they knew I was sick. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, my God, I think about you all the time. And you're in my prayer (laughs) circle and all these things. And I just I'm so glad to see you're doing well. And I look at all of them and like, (laughs) like you. Did you forget, like, how terribly you treated me in high school? (laughs) Like, where did that go? Because I didn't forget. I don't know how you did. And But when I deal with, like, the men in that situation, I was very much like, fuck off, Greg. Like, leave me alone. I don't want to talk to you. Whereas, like, with the women, with the women, I would sit there and be like, yeah, please tell me about your daughter. Like, cool. Yeah, thank you. That's great. Really hope that when she gets to high school, her life was a little bit easier than how you made mine. Like, I, (laughs) and it's one of those things where I like did it. It was so involuntary because it's such a learned and ingrained behavior. And then I walked out and I was like, I could have also said, fuck off, Amber, and like left it at that, but I didn't. I was like, you did it. Mm. And I was like super psychologically like torturous to this girl. 
It's like, why do I do that? I don't know. It's a learned <laughs> behavior. God. So then when I see that in this movie, it's not amazing. only am I like, I feel very seen because that is also how I deal with conflict. <laughs> but it, just, it makes perfect sense to me that like, yeah, you're going to emotionally manipulate Connie Britton by using her daughter. You're going to emotionally manipulate Alison Brie by like getting her drunk and then yeah. with her mind. At the same time, it makes complete sense that you're then going to like, physically go after Al Monroe, you're going to drug all of, like, his nice guy groomsmen, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and you're going to threaten Bo Burnham with, like, sarcasm and fear against, like, losing his entire line of work. Like, that yeah. makes total sense to me, and I'm like, wow, maybe I should unpack that in therapy. I've got <laughs> enough to talk about. She really, like, she brings the fight straight to Ryan, but she, like, incepts Madison with an idea mm-hmm. yes. that she lets her ruminate on for an untold amount of time she yes. like comes to ryan she's like guess what motherfucker she lets her feel the trauma without making her go through it yeah yeah oh nothing 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 to see here she just completely like sets the package at the door and walks away and like rips the packaging off in front of ryan and like holds it up to his face because it's just what you do <laughs> <laughs> Again, the casualness, the casual ease with which we can relate to the social dynamics of this movie are like, yeah, oh, fuck, I know that. I know that. What do you think that explores about female goodness and this idea that all our female leads are protagonists and especially these uh, these avenging angels, mm-hmm. so, to, so to put them, must be good? And must be moral and must not engage in this behavior that comes so naturally sometimes or this psychological warfare or these very deliberate inceptual, like incepting tortures that she deploys against specifically the female characters, but also against the men. Well, I think this is, I think this gets an interesting part of the conversation about Carrie Mulligan. Because, like, we had the whole Carrie conversation about this. Mm -hmm. And the idea of this being, like, a surprising role for Carrie Mulligan, it actually fits very well in the character selection of Carrie Mulligan. Like, the sort of, like, prickly, difficult to pin down, kind of unlikable woman who can be, like, dry and, like, you look at something like shame. You look at something like, um, that was, it's not the wildling, but, like, the, um. Well, um. Wild, wild, not wildfire, um, wildlife. Wildlife, that's filming. the one. Yeah, you look at wildlife, like, you, you look at movies for which she has, like, received a lot of praise, and she's really good at playing these, like, uncomfortable women who are just kind of, like, g- kind of almost repulsive in, like, their, their choices at times. And so I think it's very much a Carrie character in that sense. And I think what this what this does like i think the way that that kind of character serves this movie is that the like again i I keep going back to this notion of the casualness because every day in cassie's life kind of feels just like a normal day in which something extremely not normal is happening it's not like a john wick situation where we walk into like a bisexually lit like russian crime palace and he's going to take vengeance there. It, it's not, it, it's a, it's a, everything feels so routine that she's doing. Like when she walks into the dean's office, she's kind of nonchalant. She plops down in the chair. She goes to brunch with Madison. Like she's just dating Ryan. She walks into his office and she's like, hey, babe. And then she shows him a video of him laughing at a woman being raped. Like everything is just so like, this is my daily life. And this is the horror that runs in the background of my daily life. But when you see me, all you see is my packaging. And I'm here to tell you that there's an entire story underneath this packaging that you are a part of. 
and I'm going to hang hideously in front of your face now. But I'm going to do it in such a way that if you, like, told your therapist about it or you told your best friend about it, on the surface, you would have to get into the nuance of what I did that was wrong. Because on the surface, it just looks benign. It just looks benign. It looks pleasant. It looks casual. And I think that is... I think it's one of the, that to me is the most exciting part of the movie, is the way that it takes these sort of very girl, like, feminine lipstick interactions with men and women, and they're like cishet, obviously, men and women around us, and makes them, it, it kind of infuses them all with the terror of, like, the after effects of, like, the rape culture bomb going off and the shrapnel landing in every piece of you. I feel like Cassie is playing a game of like rock'em sock'em robots where one robot is the model minority trope and the other one is the strong <laughs> female character trope and that they're both just oh, like they're both just punching expand. each other <laughs> they because we talk a lot about like model minority tropes especially with like characters of color or queer characters mm-hmm. but we don't mm-hmm. usually apply that to women characters despite the fact mm-hmm. that we are still you know considered minority and like a representative, ha- like as far as yes. representative on screen, we are a minority yes. of what is present in visual media. Correct. And then we also have this like strong female character role where we want to have this female protagonist who's like super badass and doesn't let anyone say shit to her. And mm. we have them in the same ring, but they're constantly in conflict with one another because she's not falling into either of those tropes. And Mm -hmm. I think that's where a lot of the misunderstanding around her character or the lot of frustration that audiences may have with her because they want her to be one of these robots and she's not. She's Mm -hmm. the one playing the game controlling both robots. And that I think it's really frustrating for people. And it is because of how casual it is that she's having these conversations because if Madison is to recount to someone else what happened to her? Well, what mm-hmm. happened? We went to brunch. Well, what mm-hmm. happened at brunch? She mm-hmm. got me tanked on wine. Well, why did she do that? Yeah. And now I mean, you like, have well, to did she or why? was it just like, did she get you tanked or was it just brunch? Like, right. who didn't get tanked at brunch? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> and then same thing with Connie Britton. Like, this woman came into my office to talk about a former student. Okay. And then she told me that she did this to my daughter. Well, did she actually? She, yeah. well, no. Well, then why would she do that? Yeah, And then now well, you and, have to out, like, how you have participated in her issue, and that makes mm-hmm. it hard. Like, you're yeah, now Yeah, it's like, putting... well, God, what did, you, what did you say to her? Oh, well, right. I told her I didn't remember her friend who is dead now and was raped in college. Like, oh, you... Oh, wait, what now? Nothing. Exactly. Uh, never mind, never mind. Uh, it was just a yes. weird thing. I don't really want to talk about it. Like, it, the, if I am ever sending, like, a vengeful or petty message to a person, it doesn't happen often, but on the occasion that something has to be said, mm-hmm. and, like, a friend asked me recently, like, this person keeps reaching out to me. I don't want to talk to them anymore. Like, I have a lot of bad blood with them in the past, but they're just, like, ignoring it and being, like, liking my shit on Instagram, and it's actually really damaging to me for them to continue interacting with me. I want to send them, like, a fucking screed about why I don't like them, but everybody keeps telling me I shouldn't. And I feel like – she was like, I feel like you're yep. the person who will give me the advice I want to hear. And she's like, do I read this person the riot act? Like, do I do I dress them down? And, tell, and I was like, here's my question. How do you feel about step two? How do you, whatever comes after, how do you feel about that? If you don't get a response, if you get the exact response you want, if you get a horrible response, as long as you're okay with whatever step two is, go for it. Mm-hmm. And if you decide to proceed, anytime I send a message like that, I think of what if this person's therapist read this message? What would they oh. say? Would they, be, 
always therapist proof your petty messages because <laughs> like maybe like maybe maybe it is very like you can write something like angry severe pointed intense but if you make it reasonable if you back it up with evidence if you present an argument around it and you say like these are direct things you did to cause direct harm the ways in which you did them and this is how i feel about it you're a valid person with feelings who communicated clearly and expressed yourself honestly so it's like mm-hmm. your therapist the therapist reads it and it's like okay i see why this is difficult but like let's unpack like what's going on in this but not like this is a hostile person who's clearly lashing out at you and you can't do anything about their own securities, insecurities and trauma and baggage. So like, you know, really like it, it, it dis- take away from them the ability to minimize the thing you did with your own behavior and you've left them locked. You've left them locked up. And each of these people, if they went to somebody else and talked about what happened, it would make them look fucking terrible and raise more questions about their behaviors than answers about how Cassie treated them in the moment. Which is ultimate girl psychological warfare. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which quite neatly brings me on to the next point. I would kind of, as we started, kind of start winding down this this conversation, and it's rage, and it's how mm-hmm. messy and not therapist proof Cassie's yeah. rage is in the film. And how also the rage that a lot of people have felt watching this movie. Some of it has been incredibly uh, poignant and and has provoked a lot of questions and comfortable conversations, necessary conversations. Has provoked a really visceral reaction, which for me is always a great litmus test for any movie. If it yeah. literally makes you physically feel something even if it's anger, even if you're angry at the movie or how it's portrayed something, that's always a win in my book. If art mm-hmm. is provoking a physical reaction and you a reaction in that way and makes you question some some things, um, that's always a, a... Well, it's done part of its job. But I wanted yeah, to ask you guys... It. At least it did part At least of part of it. But what do you make of, of the way of Cassie's anger in this film and the way that she lashes out, the way that she sometimes very specifically directs it at, at people and at the overall institution that protects um, rapists and, ass- and and abusers as opposed to victims and survivors. Um, what do you make of the way that that messy rage is deployed and presented in the film? I wish we saw more rage expressed this way. Um, when I teach students, I, I'm a teacher and I teach social emotional mm-hmm. competency. And we talk about anger. I mm-hmm. ask my kids, show me what anger looks like. And frequently it's crossed arms, stomping of feet, yelling. It's that's, that's rage. And then I will look at them very distinctly and very calmly. And I'll go, clean your room. And then I'll say, how, do, how am I feeling right now? And they're like, you're really angry. And I was like, but did I stomp my feet? No. Did I cross my arms? No. Did I yell? No. Well, then how do you know that I'm angry? And they're like, because that's how my mom gets angry. And I was like, yes. I was like, we all show anger in different ways. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that anger is controlled. And that's the anger that I think 
people have the most visceral reaction to because it is so familiar. That is the Mm -hmm. anger of your teacher when you don't turn in your homework. That's the anger of your mom when she can't yell at you because there are guests over. Like that type of anger, I think like triggers something in our lizard brain that makes us so uncomfortable. And I think that's (laughs) something people have a problem with because Promising Young Woman makes you so uncomfortable. You don't have that like, release of catharsis the way that you do with like midsummer where everybody's in the same room screaming their heads off together yeah. you're like oh mm-hmm. that's so communal and that like oh i want that release you don't get that with cassie cassie will sit there and stare you in the face and then she'll leave and then break a window <laughs> like yeah she <laughs> makes sure that like that expression of rage is not like in front of you you don't get to see that aspect what you get is intensity and intent intensity mm-hmm. and Intent. yeah and that i think is so brilliant but i also think that is why people can't process it because they're like i'm uncomfortable this is yeah. too familiar <laughs> because you can distance yourself like if somebody comes up to me on the bus and they're screaming at me and they're like i hope you die i'm like well that person's clearly out of it and i can like tune them out but if somebody yeah. were to yes. sit next to me and whisper in my ear hey you're gonna die it's gonna wreck me for the rest of my life. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like, well, that was a witch and it's over. Exactly. There's another <laughs> there's another element there that you um that you made me think of, BJ, and it's the fact that Cassie, and I think this extends to a lot of people who have to control and not show their anger, is that it's never it must never be seen in public. Mm-hmm. It's this again bigger much more systemic pressure of like women don't get angry yeah you don't get angry and if you do make sure you get angry in a private space where nobody can see and nobody can hold it against you yeah that i think mm-hmm. a, a british a british woman is very especially suited to convey <laughs> <laughs> but that that moment where she just punches something or kicks the trash can or mm-hmm. has these little moments of explosion mm-hmm. I found so both telling and like just really really sad to see the fact that yeah. she has to wait those extra few minutes until she's mm-hmm. out of sight until she's out of sight and she can actually express it in that in a way that doesn't feel cinematic because it's not it's not someone it's not John mm-hmm. Wick like punching through some dudes it's not like macheting her way out of her rage it's not built in that way and i love those movies as well but this is so much more um every day in a way it's every day man it's every day yeah like the amount of times that i've maybe maybe you know not kicked a trash can but definitely kicked something uh, (laughs) after a really really when i was really really fucking angry but i knew that there was no space and that it was definitely not a, a space to express it publicly yeah. or not a way to express it publicly that's the only way you can let it out well and i think too um you know it's not a big strain of criticism this me but i still like I, I i still feel like i see some like you know what the fuck is the point of what she's doing like what is to what end kind of thing mm-hmm. um and searching for just certain critiques that search for a logic in cassie's routine and her yeah. behavior when it's yeah. asking to find logic in in addiction it's asking Mm. to find like a reason Mm -hmm. within um like an addictive or self-destructive loop like you know well when people when people are are being self-destructive they hurt themselves like 
there's not a fucking logical argument for that beyond like, well, I have my, you know, you can talk yourself into any rationale, but like the corrosiveness of that much hate and that much anger and that much like un un like directed but unprocessed rage like you can stay mad like i don't think everybody mm. needs to be for i'm a proponent of not forgiving like if you need that in your life i support that forgive who you need to forgive yes move on find peace if actually you don't need to forgive a person to move forward and be like healthy in your life then don't like if they don't deserve it and you don't want to give mm. it then fucking don't like i haven't forgiven my dad for like the drug abuse and the like spending of all the family money like we have a relationship i found peace with it but i don't need to forgive him for that and he hasn't mm. done anything really to earn it so okay um that's not part of my healing journey but i've worked through the corrosive feelings about it and so it doesn't like it doesn't make it doesn't have a deleterious effect on my quality of life what you have in cassie is something that is destroying her from the inside to the point where she is at this point pretty much hollow and mm. there kind of isn't anything left but the shell that moves around and it is organized around the procedures that she's built to be a person with a miss with a mission and an identity that is structured around this nightly ritual that she goes out and does and then ryan throws off that ritual and then the reality of al's marriage comes around and it throws off her meticulously built path of daily life which is like this is just these are like her ocd tendencies that get her through these are the things that allow her to leave the house every day these are her fixes these are her fixes that allow that are a form of self-harm and a form of self-destruction for her as well but it's the thing that she also again in her developing relationship with ryan kind of promises to stop doing in this using the same language of addiction of you know i'm i'm gonna stop and she stops but then when that fall breaks apart and that falls away it's the thing she goes back to mm-hmm. and, you know, not to perhaps this is a crass parallel, but it definitely feels like a, a bender when she goes in that final mission. She's mm-hmm. going like knowing that that perhaps will be the thing that destroys her mm-hmm. and she's willing to accept that. We spoke about yeah. this on a, on a previous episode, but to to kind of wrap up on a, on a last question that I wanted to ask you and you you pointed this out earlier, Jordan, that she's built her her shell of an identity, the shell that is Cassie. Mm -hmm. She's building her mission and a lot of her identity around her friendship with Nina. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what you think of, what you both think of the choice to center all of this narrative on Nina's assault, Mm -hmm. but never show her. Not Not even in a photograph. Obviously, there's the the video which we hear and we see Cassie's reaction watching that, but we never see it. And I actually mm-hmm. really, really love that choice to not mm-hmm. show it. Um, but we never get any glimpse of Nina. We always we hear her described, we hear mm-hmm. her talked about, mostly by Cassie. Yeah, we see we, we hear see her remembered of them as children. Yeah, we we see her kind of remembered um, mm-hmm. in the way that Cassie wants her to rem- to be remembered, but. What do you make of this of this choice to never actually show the the victim of the of the rape that is this the well inciting incidents for and the stop and start of Cassie's life? I I I appreciate the choice in the sense of um I myself am not a survivor. I'm not going to speak to like how that plays for somebody who has gone through something like this and like what the idea of presence and erasure like that's a that's a important conversation for my purposes in this movie. I for the sense of like loss um, and the sense of like the way we operate in absence of a person it felt very 
effective to me and I liked it because people like when we are in absence of somebody uh for better or worse they become concepts they become abstractions um and we we hold on to the things we need to hold on to that are most important to us that that get us through and in you know we can't have the reality of a person and all of their tangibles and intangibles and nuance and so we operate based on like an assumption of of we we operate based on the memory of what they were and i think the the combination in this movie of the power of rage and the power of sadness and pain to affect you in 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 lasting and in perhaps un- immovable ways to that you will re you can reform your entire identity around a loss and you can reform your entire identity around the depths of the, the, the heights of rage or the depths of sadness. And it, it, it can remake you on like almost like a chemical level. It can make you an entirely different person and loss does the same thing. It, you are not the person you were before the thing you lost in, in certain like extremely consequential contexts. So I think the, the fact that you take each of those elements and you see how Cassie wasn't the person she was before and she'll never be that person again. Whoever, if say she lived, Cassie at 35 or 38 was never going to get back to Cassie at 16. And that like bright and shiny young girl who wanted to be a doctor because that person is gone. And they can find a new way of healthily operating through the world, but it's never going to look the way it did before the event. And I think the power and the the enduring power of a love for a person to so fundamentally change an individual when they are gone i think this movie does a really good job at illustrating that i think it i think it actually is quite an i think it does quite well and quite i think i think like accurately um just like how severe this can how severely this can change your life and also what our brains are capable of when we need to create a reality that keeps us going in the way that we hang on to people and things that sustain us healthily or not in the way that she hangs on to Nina. I think the purpose to keep her an abstraction emphasizes the emphasizes the fact that we are with a slightly we're with a, a maybe unreliable narrator in the form of Cassie and that we only have her impression of Nina to go off of creates to me. I love the love story that that creates around it and the sort of like this great, this great love that Nina was to her. But I also think it emphasizes the sort of like almost dreamy quality that this entire movie have, like the way it could that be, like I said at the beginning, this whole snow globe that just existed in a dream alongside Cassie's bedside table that she put herself into and then will wake up from one day. So I, I like that choice personally, but I, I know that's, that's a different, that's different for everybody. I also like this choice and you know, I, I'm not going to speak as a survivor because we all bring our lived experiences to this movie. So we're sure. mm-hmm. not a monolith. We're all going to have different mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. perspectives on it, but I like the choice because to me it does feel accurate because as much as what happened to me is one of the most life-changing moments that I'm ever going to experience, I'm a girl at a party to a lot of mm-hmm. people that I know. There are people who were there that don't remember that it was me, that have talked mm-hmm. to me about that party, mm-hmm. not recognizing that I'm the one it happened to. Mm-hmm. And as much as that does cause me a great amount of pain, I feel a weird level of comfort with Promising Young Woman because I do know what that feels like. And it is my community and my friends and my own advocacy that has tried to like keep my name out there. But at mm-hmm. the same time, I think about, you know, not a one-to-one comparison, but I think about how common it is that there are, you know, school shootings in America 
we know about the school and we know about the event, but mm-hmm. how frequently do we know who it impacted? Because mm-hmm. we don't ever talk about that. And mm-hmm. Promising Young Woman is not advocating for like erasing the names of these people, but it's mm-hmm. saying, hey, we don't ever really remember these people. And like, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. how we're functioning in a society. And I don't think it's a bad thing to sort of make us face that reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is what it this is what it can do to people when they are the ones bearing the weight of responsibility to be the living memory. Yes, 100%. when it is yes. when it is not something we do as a community, but it is something that is left to the the closest survivors. Mm-hmm. They then mm-hmm. bear the weight of being the ones who have to who have to carry the names. And there there can be a joy in remembrance in that way, but there also comes with it a, a pain and a burden. And mm-hmm. because Cassie is just like desperate for nina to like you know i'm gonna carve her name all over your body al she goes to her mom she goes to nina's mom's surely to have one other person who's willing to say nina's name because Mm -hmm. like her parents are like sweet but they're just not dealing with it and she goes to the one other person who she can every once in a while check in with to be like remember when we were kids but even that well runs dry because that person needs to move forward and move on in their own way and like because because we all cope in our own individual ways and her mom's like you have to stop doing this cassie and it's like well if if she can't go to her then there's literally no one she can go to and she is Mm -hmm. the single person wanting to scream this name out into the world that no one wants to no one wants to hear and no one seems to remember and I think in in a way that that choice also illustrates the the way that the wider culture, um, you know, be that individual relationships, society, the press, what have you, the institutions, those they don't tend to remember as evidenced by the character of the dean as well. They don't tend to remember those names. Yeah, they will. They don't tend to remember. They don't um, mourn them in the same way. So I think there's a that choice functions on multiple levels and and i and i appreciate both of your readings of it for me it's it is about making an additional statement on the wider rape culture it's like how can you can you name can you talk about the the survivors can you talk about what they went through can you Mm -hmm. name their families can you name their friends can you can we talk about anyone that's not the the mm-hmm. rapists or the perpetrators it's also the bigger cultural choice of who do we choose to remember and whose name we we carve into um into the wider culture mm-hmm. yep and on that note <laughs> on um, that note <laughs> and on that note um so before we wrap up this is the last episode. We spent so so much time already discussing this film. I feel like we could go on for a few hours more, but we're not going to do that because I do have a, a smidge of self control. Um, <laughs> we've been talking about a, a very a complex, thorny issue, and I loved what you said, BJ, at the beginning of this recording about that we culturally simplify it sometimes, mm-hmm. and how. It's it's difficult to process and it's uncomfortable to have the conversation internally and with other people and with the pieces of media and pop culture that we that are given to us that are produced. What other films or series do you think are just as just as uncomfortable, perhaps viewing, but just as interesting and necessary viewing as Promising Young Woman is? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, I am probably the foremost champion for. 1978's I Spit on Your Grave. You are. You are a champion of that. (laughs) I have done a lot of writing on it, and the caveat that Mm -hmm. I always give people with it is I 
Never in my life do I think that this is mandatory viewing, but Mm. I do think that it is one that needs to be accessible for those who choose to pursue it because Mm -hmm. it is, to my knowledge, the only rape revenge film uh, written by a man who actually had a uh, personal connection to the material. It was written in direct response to the director coming across a woman in Central Park who had been assaulted and nobody would help her. And that intent and that perspective on that mm. film, and I do have to say, it, that film must must exist in a vacuum because there have since been, you know, sequels and remakes and that mm. opens an entirely other messy discussion about profiting off of rape culture. But mm-hmm. looking at that film in a vacuum, I think is so important, but more importantly than just the film, the cultural response to it and how that conversation mm. continues to be had to this day. Um, and that movie for me is one that I know that so many people want to scrub out of existence the same way a lot of people want to do with Promising Young Woman. And I think they're both so necessary to these conversations. What about you, Jordan? Um, I would say to to me, my favorite precursor of the way this movie works is Miss 45. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like it's the it's like the 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 t- most top line deep cut like it, it is a, a deep cut I guess but in that way that like if you're an annoying movie person you do know this one like it's not gonna surprise you mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but there is like tonally and um tonally I think there is an in like watch the virgin spring watch the virgin spring mm-hmm. the the Bergman movie the way the sort of like slow play out the like the very aware of the of the the perpetrators the entire time the way that that just kind of like there's a revenge plot around them and they don't know it and it's just playing out very routinely it's very casual it's just a very sort of every day in the life for the the rapists in that film and the father that's going to like that is pursuing vengeance on them i think there are definitely like mood parallels in promising young woman and then i will always hype up just generally the sort of neo exploitation wave of Mm. of the past like five years i will always say the mfa i will always say the perfection um i will say if you're willing to put yourself through a punishing historical drama then the nightingale oh god Um, yeah yeah (laughs) um revenge is obviously like a great like hyper saturated candy colored experience in revenge cinema and then you know cold hell cold hell has a little bit of like avenging angel um high punishment energy if you want to go in for something that's like a grisly almost like action thriller vengeance movie in this similar vein those would be my list i also want to throw out lady snowblood which i yeah oh yeah i think right i think lady snowblood has a lot of similar energy and yeah you're completely right might be a film for, you know, a lot of the naysayers of this movie that might kind of tickle a fancy that you didn't get out of this one. Because um, yeah. similar energy, but, you know, obviously a very, very different genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd also like to throw in there, obviously, Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You, which, yes. oh, a lo- yeah. which is a BBC series and it's fucking fantastic in every single sense um and i think that it's it's yeah. actually been unfortunate that it's been so compared to promising our woman because they're entirely mm-hmm. different stories entirely, entirely different point different. of view entirely different um formats even mm-hmm. it, they've got and also this indonesian film called merlina the murderer in four acts which i don't okay. think it's talked enough about but i've not is seen like, it i will now see it it's like an indonesian revenge western 
fantastic. It's fantastic. <laughs> Great. News. It's 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 gorgeous and it's and it's really really damning, and yeah, I by directed by Mulia Surya. I hope I'm not mispronouncing that again. I always worry about that. And obviously, Hard Candy from yeah. 2016. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do do see Hard Candy for sure. Mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. So. With all of those recommendations as well in the ether, um, BJ Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time to record this with me and for your insight and for sharing so much of your opinions and your takes and, and also personal experiences with this film. And where can people find more of your work online after they finish listening to this episode? Yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. You can also find my podcast, uh, This Ends at Prom, uh, at This Ends at Prom. And we have a Patreon, patreon.com backslash This Ends at Prom. <laughs> and you can find me online at uh, Twitter, uh, on Twitter at Jorcrew, J-O-R-C-R-U. And then obviously, yes, the Patreon, patreon.com slash Crucciola. Excellent. Thank you both so much. If for anyone listening who has not listened to a single episode of the Final Ghost podcast, we've got three completed Start. seasons. Start now. <laughs> we've got witches. We've got female monsters. We've got vampires. We've got a lot of Jordan on that podcast as well. And you can also <laughs> find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the final girls. And I am on Twitter at Anna B. Demented. Thank you so much for both of you. Thank you, especially Jordan, for joining me on this on this mini series for <laughs> hours talking about this one. Thank you, you, ins- you so inspired much for having me, here. Anna. You know how much I love it, and you know how much I seek to delight you. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm in a constant state of delight, even when we're talking about some really hardcore and comfortable shit. <laughs> Yep, and as we as we tend to do. (laughs) Thank you both so so much. 